Welcome to Dead Cat. This is Eric Newcomer. We've got Tom and Katie here, and we have Kate Clark, startup reporter, VC reporter from The Information, who's been writing tirelessly about a one-click payment disaster world with fast imploding and the Bolt CEO being a lunatic or ex-Bolt CEO. Anyway, so we should have a fun startup world conversation. Katie has undiagnosed COVID at the moment and Kate has lost her voice. So we've got a bunch of sickos <laughs> I guess, up with us. So sickos. Is... <laughs> yeah. Kate was probably screaming at PR people all of yesterday. Well, thanks for having me despite despite my um, lost voice. Yeah, of course. I mean, we. I feel like this story has taken, and it's been mostly you and your colleagues reporting, you know, has taken Silicon Valley by storm, partially because it's one of the first real, I think, startup implosions when, when everybody sort of thinks they're coming. Or I don't know. Like, I, I just want you to sort of lay out the story a little bit because a lot's happened. Like, where does it begin to you? Like, when did we all start caring about one-click checkout companies? When did they yeah. really get on your radar as like startups that mattered in like the zeitgeist of Silicon Valley? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think they really started to matter when all of this VC funding flew into them. Like these companies were raising, you know, over a hundred million dollars. And in Fast's case, it really, really got my attention when Stripe invested, which, you know, has now been a couple of years ago. And then not only did Stripe invest, but this company, you know, pre-product launch, really early stage was was out in the market looking for a billion dollar valuation, you know, as long ago as like late 2020. So when you start seeing that and, you you know, at the same time, you're seeing them sort of peddle these $1 hoodies on Twitter that didn't make a lot of sense for a fintech company. So I think those early signs really got people paying attention. And then you had the competition with Bolt and you had this really bombastic public figure CEO, you know, in Brian Breslow, CEO of Bolt. And I think he really he really got people's attention, too. So then you have this war of these two companies so Amazon lost its patent in 2017. And then I think in a couple in the a couple of years later, you really start to see two companies rise with the help of hundreds of millions in VC funding together. And that's Fast and Bolt. Yeah, both companies had CEOs who were all over Twitter, all over the tech press, like really making a splash and really, really trying to capture and bring a lot of attention to what they were building, which was one-click checkout software. So Fast in particular, you know, really gets on my radar when Stripe invests and then invests again at the Series B and puts a hundred million dollars, you know, with the help of Lee Fixel, who's a former Tiger Global partner, his firm addition, puts a total of a hundred million dollars in this company. And then again, pre-launch, you know, nothing to show for itself. So of course we're all watching, paying attention, wondering what's going wow, on with this it company. Was pre-launch, I didn't even realize that. Yes. And they they had a lot of delays. And it's it's after Bolt, right? Bolt is a little bit ahead of fast. Yeah. So Bolt, and, and Bolt's run by this guy, Ryan Breslow, or at least he, he, co- he co-founds it, right? He did. And he's the CEO for a long time until this year, which is a whole other story <laughs> you guys have probably talked about. Yeah. So Bolt gets started many years before, actually. I think Bolt was founded in 2014. You know, it took a long time to build the technology. It took a long time before launch. So already had a, had a head start, also had a different strategy. They were targeting larger businesses, which you know, larger businesses equals more transaction volume equals more revenue. Fast was targeting smaller businesses and you need a lot more customers in order to make any dent there. And that right. ends up being a big problem for them. And so then to skip skip ahead a little bit, I mean, Ryan Breslow is basically the guy who does the tweet storm right before leaving the CEO job at Bolt, where he says, you know, there's this grand conspiracy where YC and Stripe are basically running Silicon Valley and it's made it hard for him to fundraise. It's the and Irish was, mafia. Right, exactly. It, so, you know, that, it's the that, road to that created all this drama. And honestly, it made me think sort of not following these companies closely, like, oh, fast, the rival must be doing super well because this tweet storm seems really like defensive. It's like, oh, you know, we've had such a hard time because all the stars have aligned with our rival fast. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, so then, then what happens with fast? Like, so all of a sudden I'd heard of fast because, you know, the co-founder is what? Allison Bar Allen. Bar Allen. Yeah. Who was ex Uber and was sort of buzzy Twitter presence. So I, I knew I was more aware of her than 
Dom. But so yeah, where pick us up from? We've got the tweet storm, and then what? Where's the? What's the first sign of something going on at Fast? Yeah. So what? What was the tweet storm? January, January, February. Let's say okay. So a few months ago, I remember reading that tweet storm and thinking, "What is you know what is Dom the CEO of Fast going to say?" You know he, he had been he had gone quite quiet on Twitter. I noticed then. And again, this is someone who was very loud on Twitter for for several years. And he made some statement on Twitter, like supporting Ryan Breslow, um, which I thought was interesting. But at the time, you know, I I was not aware of any issues at Fast. I like I didn't think that they were booming necessarily, but I, I wasn't aware of what was to come. What's really unique to me about this about Fast, and what's really crazy is how fast how fast it all happened, like the the collapse. I don't think I've ever seen something. Ha- a collapse um so accelerated so you know we first heard of issues there i want to say less than three weeks ago yeah maybe about three weeks ago um and you know the company's already shut down so (laughs) and that is because i mean at the end of the day it's because they expected they could raise more money and you know the venture capitalists are not um as readily investing in companies right now as you know so they just it just happened like what was interesting about it to me is it it shut the fuck down. Like you don't see that that often in tech, you know, companies will have soft landings. They'll manage to place, you know, half of the company elsewhere. There'll be just some sort of selling in parts that happens, but a full on, like everything must go. This shit is over with shut it all down. Just doesn't happen that often. And certainly not one that oh, has just, such... When's the last time we saw that? Was it Juicero? <sighs> I, mean, I mean, this is like eight years ago. Seven years. Ago. I mean, yeah. this is like v- very personal to me because I wrote about one company. This was like seven years ago. There was like a laundry company called Washio that had some high end VCs in yeah, it. You and- love yes. the wa- laundry space. I saw you did a new laundry story. I, I'll yes. never stop. Keep pitching me your laundry stories. I will. I will. I will take you seriously. It was like time. a ten million dollar round or something. And yeah, it's like, nothing. Yeah, just raise an A round. Never yeah. stop it. It's t- it t- Tom yeah. actually just he just needs a new washer dryer. That's the actual. That's no, the, uh, actually, I I got a new one. That's we'll do a spinoff podcast podcast about my my back and forth with my uh, home home warranty but but um yeah they uh they shut down like sold the desk sold the macbooks so that was one that i remember but you know not this is more professional than that yeah, this, this was a hundred million raise this is different <laughs> there have been many like ducero um type startup implosions but i don't know how many there have been when they're you know over 500 or roughly 500 employees and i think that's why it happened so quickly it's like there were the the other option, I guess, would have been laying off 400 workers and trying to keep on 100. But I think, you know, when you actually have zero dollars and no VC is willing to invest, like they they just they they put themselves up against a wall by growing so fast in 2021. They hired they went from 90 to like nearly 400 workers in 2021. And, and they were bragging about the pace of employee growth as if that was sort of a sign of underlying success, which you all reported. And then the revenue figure is astounding. How did you get the sort of financials? It, it was $600,000 in revenue in, in a from year, From checkout right? software. Yeah, from their checkout software. So, and I note that because they also have a merch business. So they sell t-shirts and hoodies and they've, <laughs> they've sold 60,000 hoodies according to their website. <laughs> oh my God, it's like Granted, Evernote back for in maybe the day. a dollar. Yeah, yeah right. so, so there's there's perhaps other revenue that we didn't account for. I, I, I don't sure. know how much from their merch business, but yes, um, I think- we were we were quite shocked by that number as well. It's so much to ask about with the, I mean, I don't want to jump too far ahead because the, the actual details of how Dom ran the company are hysterical. And, uh, you know, to use an overused term, like a cautionary tale uh, within tech. But my takeaway from there being just no <laughs> outcome for the company is that there was literally nothing there in the end. Like there was no tech of substance to acquire. I mean, it's a quasi Theranos situation where like when you really get down to like what it invented or what it really produced over the course of its lifetime, there's just nothing of value. No one wanted to right. aqua hire shit other than some engineers, right? I right? Mean, that just went to some a firm. of the engineers. Yeah. And we'll see. I'll, I'm very curious myself how many of them, like what that deal actually entailed and how many engineers a firm's actually going to take on. Yeah. As an aqua hire or just hiring people? Well, it was some kind of agreement where they're going to take oh, okay. on. Like, I don't, I don't know the specifics. So we, yeah. we basically, we just said in our story, like a firm agreed to Take on, I mean, probably like a couple dozen of them. Uh, I think they have like a, a pretty pretty large engineering team. So, I mean, there's a certain responsibility when a company dies. You're supposed to like, I mean, I think there are even laws about it. Like you're supposed to, if you think your company is about to run out of money, you're supposed to sa- save enough 
to give some sort of reasonable severance to the people that work there? Like, did they, they gave like two days of severance or what did they do when this whole thing shuts down to like look out for the employees? Yeah, I don't know what the severance packages were, but you're right. There, I mean, not only is there maybe rules or laws, but they also, as a CEO, he should have been thinking further ahead. And that's why like the only way I can understand what happened is by believing that he was 100% certain that he would be able to get that rescue financing at the end. I think that he really thought that VCs like Stripe or Edition or Index Ventures, who are all, you know, big investors in this company, I think he really believes that one of them would would provide right. that last minute round. Like like what good is being tied in with the mob? I think reasonably not be so. There? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yes. Like, it, right. It, and what is your thinking on like why they didn't, like we've seen venture capital firms bail out so many companies. Yeah. Was it simply the insanity of the CEO? What, why was it they chose to let this one go and not just let it go, but like in a really public and right. <laughs> incredibly dramatic way? Right. I mean, cause it's, it hurts their reputations, right? Like, I mean, particularly Stripe, who is like yeah, this absolutely. Silicon Valley darling, that's kind of developed this big reputation as an investor too. But I mean, I think the, re- the the real reason is likely because of how large the company was and how much money it would have required, because it's not like one round would have would have been the silver bullet. It's going to need to continued investment. And how I mean, how much hundreds of millions like I, like to support a 500 person company that is it like made still- six hundred thousand dollars in revenue, like mm-hmm. yeah, right, and ten million dollars a month in burn. So, right. just you know, you can do that math. So I think that's the answer. I think another, you know, I mean. I don't want to speculate too much, but I think that there's perhaps, you know, I think some of these investors might have realized what they had on their hands with Dom and maybe realized that what he had promised, you know, he was not delivering on his promises. So I think there was some of that as well. And maybe just the markets themselves, sort of everyone seems like they're taking a step back a little bit to assess. Yes, absolutely. Bad timing for them with that right. too. If this was right. 2021, yeah, yeah I was going to say, can, like, can Masa no longer be tricked into taking these shitty companies? What happened? Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't crazy enough. SoftBank's right. See, they're back, all, they've all pulled back. Yeah, the I Tigers think kind of pulled back. And If it was a different, I mean, it, yes, that's what's also really interesting about this is it really tells a story of the moment. And I think we're going to see, we're definitely going to see more of this. This is certainly an outlier for certain reasons, like the behavior of the CEO. He already had a spotty past, et cetera. But I think we'll see many more um, startup implosions because they're just not going to be able to raise the money they need to keep going. Can we dig into that for a second here? I mean, I want to definitely go into the larger implications and what, you know, what it all means going forward. But he's I mean, there's so much funny stuff in your story on the way he ran the company and like the big kind of company wide uh, meetings. I'm still watching the WeWork show. So I just saw the episode where they have like the WeWork, you know, cult camp, uh, uh, you know, WeWork chant thing. So what, um, like give us some anecdotes from how, uh, how Dom was, uh, hanging out in Florida with jet skis. Oh yeah. So they, I, I actually, I highly recommend to anyone listening, you can go on Facebook and search this and you can watch the video and it is surreal. So Dom last year decided to open an East Coast hub or East Coast headquarters in Tampa, Florida, where he had moved. So, you know, I bought a house there. And he Tampa? Yes, Tampa, like, Florida. So not, not Miami, even Miami. Tampa. What the fuck? Extraordinary yeah. choice. <laughs> he bought a very nice home in Tampa, opened, a, opened up a headquarters, and he hosted this big, really lavish, exciting event to announce this. He has the mayor of Tampa there with him. He has several local sports stars who I can't name, you know, sports teams that are based there and then he makes a grand entrance in a nascar with a um a nascar race driver uh in the driver's seat um they do a bunch of donuts uh spinning around in the vehicle and then you know revving the engine like crazy and then they land right next to kind of where the mayor is speaking and dom gets out he has somebody in the audience put his jacket on him kind of like you know like a celebrity pink blazer walks up on stage and then just gives this speech about how, you know, how the phenomenal growth that they've had, what's ahead for them, how they, you know, Tampa's the next big hub. And they've, you know, he's got all these local supporters because of course- The mayor was there, right? Yes, the (laughs) the mayor. Yeah, Mayor Jane Castor was there. Eric, everyone who buys a house in Tampa gets this treatment. So just know that if you buy a house in Tampa- (laughs) I I spent a summer in Tampa. It's just one of the things that happens. It's a real nice city, you know, it is, it's a real, it's a big, 
I think it's the biggest you metropolitan blow donuts area with the mayor. in Florida. It is. Yeah, not- I think I think Florida mayor is one of those jobs that, like, at some point in your career, you may <laughs> you may not put on your LinkedIn. <laughs> like like Florida town mayor. There's a chance that you're just well, like, oh yeah, yeah that like, did that did happen, but let's not go over half that. Half the events you went to were with some sort of like huckster Florida man type. You know, you look back uh, yeah. on them like, oh. yeah, you like at AKA some point. The mayor? <laughs> You converted your entire income into Shiba Inu and (laughs) you realized that this was all a huge mistake and your third wife is leaving you. And yeah, you didn't realize you gave Dom from fast to pink jacket. Like it's all a blur. Anyway, so that was going down. He's got all their support because this is like a, what, third, maybe third tier tech hub, whatever you want to call it. That's trying to invite more tech workers. So they're so excited. You know, they say, this is one of the fastest growing companies in Silicon Valley, which, you know, he just told them and they repeated. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really, like I said, it's surreal to watch. I mean, it, it to see that I'm company one of now, the fastest growing companies in Silicon Valley. <laughs> let's let's get you down to Jacksonville, later. Katie. We can, we can get you a meeting with the mayor of, uh, the mayor of Pensacola. Um, yeah. So anyways, it's eight months later, they're shut down. So it's, it's quite a sight to see. And he didn't hire anyone in Tampa, right? He, he like, did not. Hired nobody. Yeah. He had one colleague who moved out there with him, who was like <laughs> an engineering manager. Um, yeah, but that, it, it was, yeah, I mean, he was, again, false promises. Um, I don't know what his intent this, was. This guy, this guy had not, he'd like changed his name because his past was so he did. sketchy, right? He, he used to be, he used to go by Dominic. He changed it to Dom. Long story short, he had a towing tow truck startup in Australia that not only like was liquidated, but there was like some really bad things that happened to some of the like it just kind of screwed over all the employees. And you can read about that. I think NPR has done some good reporting on that. And I mean, I personally think that some of the early investors did not know about that. And that is completely on them. It just takes a Google search. But I think we were in Wait, that. It's not like he changed his name from Dominic to Richard. He changed his name from Dominic no. to Dom. In- incredibly easy to find. And I think it was just really telling of the moment. You know, that was 2019 when he raised all that early funding. And certainly that wasn't 2021. But honestly, 2019 was pretty like euphoric in venture capital too. It was just before the pandemic boom. So it was during a period that lasted years where diligence was... Right. Sometimes non-existent. I mean, I literally. <laughs> but just to, just to pause though, like there was the 2012 boom, the 2014 boom, the 2016 right. boom, the the yeah. Trump boom, the recession boom. The it's pandem- 12 years of boom. What is the valley not booming? They won't boom for anything. They'll find right, a any boom is not an boom. I don't. I don't no. buy that at all. It's sort of <laughs> no. But sometimes there are like three week three week long drawbacks. And, you know, they batten down the hatches and winter, winter comes for like a long downturns. Yeah. Yeah, Like winter comes for a long weekend. No, it's definitely not an excuse. I just think that's like, that was the environment, you know, but that's just crazy to me. Anyway, it would have been easy to find out more about his past. Well, yeah. I mean, literally you probably, when you Google like Dominic or Dom, they're just, you know, Google's like, did you mean Dominic? (laughs) I mean, Jan Hammer at Index. I mean, he's sort of the lead early investor here, right? Or I feel like- He's big in Robinhood, which is his own company that people have like big, big moral like objections to. I don't know. Like, what's your sense of his role here? Yeah. So he's the first institutional investor. So he plays a huge role in providing credibility to this early stage company. He is at the time already big in Robinhood TransferWise and Adyen, which are three of, you know, the largest fintech companies. So he is kind of the consumer fintech investor. Like, there's no denying that, again, that he provided that credibility. I don't know what he knew. I mean, you can, I cited some of the blog posts that he wrote about Fast in 2020. He really believed in Dom and he thought that Dom was an incredible leader and um, said many nice things about him. Um, You know, he wouldn't, they would not comment for the article. So I couldn't really find out more about what actually happened in in more recent times. I mean, one broader, one trend in Silicon Valley that I'm sure you've seen is just like, these boards are becoming more and more like founder inventions. They like bring on whoever they want so that they don't get bothered by like their investors. And I went in the way back machine and it's like in January, 2021, they, they say their board is Dom, Lockie Groom and Brian Sugar from group nine. Like what, what is that board? Like, I mean, I think of, you know, Lockie as, you know, he was at Stripe he deployed a lot of capital. Like what, what's the, what's the deal there? And then I guess like towards the end, I, I forget, you probably know the the board at the end better than I do. 
Yeah, um, and yeah, I think it's it's a small board. I, I think yeah. it's maybe oh, it's Brian. A stripe. Someone, oh, oh, an executive oh, from Stripe. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. Brian, Dom, and and Jan. Yeah, so it's interesting. Lucky Lucky Green was an early Stripe employee, as we know now, is like a big time solo VC. He is not an investor in Fast, but he has a close relationship with Stripe and was sort of like there. Uh, he, he represented Stripe on the board, basically. Like he, it's kind of like a call of favor. He knew Stripe well. They thought he'd be good. So he's on the board for a bit. I don't know much about Brian Sugar. I know I know Brian quite, quite yeah, well. Yeah, I assume okay. would. Yeah, I mean, Brian, Brian is the president of Group 9. I imagine he may be on his way out post the merger with Vox. And then he has a side venture fund that I think he invests out of his personal capital, I think, called like Sugar Fund or something. And they're an investor in Fast. Yeah, and they do a lot. He's done a lot of e-commerce, like oh, D2C okay. stuff. Yeah, he does a lot of D2C stuff. So he knows e-commerce, but not necessarily the fintech side. Apparently. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I don't want to speak for Brian. Um, I, I, we should ask him to come on sometime because he's a chatty guy. But, you know, he's he's plugged into that space. But uh, seems like something some, there's a some, seems like there's a bit of a gap between that expertise and what would have been good oversight for this company would be my assessment. Yeah, I, I was, you know, in, in the reporting process, we were told by some former employees that Brian was often cited kind of like in sales pitches as like, you know, a key investor. And some of the salespeople were like, why are we even talking about this guy? Like, this isn't going to be relevant to any of these customers. So there was a lot of confusion about like why why they promoted certain investors in the in the pitching to to clients. He, he has a great Instagram. <laughs> I follow him there. Solid, solid stories. A lot of home cooking. You're all over the startup world stuff. What's your view on like, I don't know, board composition right now, sort of generally? Because you know, we saw, you know, the tigers of the world basically being like, we don't want a board seat. We don't want a medal. It gave the founders a lot more like control over who they appointed. I'm sure you've heard the same things as I have where they're, they're early investors who bristle, you know, the sequoias of the world. And I mean, they're obviously all over, but when they invest early, it's sort of like, oh, we have to keep being the responsible person, even though these sort of hedge funds crossovers come in. I don't know. Do you think there's, do you have any optimism that there's a move back to like, okay, investors need to take a board seat and have some like culpability for their, the companies they invest in? I mean, I think, I, I think it'll be interesting to have this conversation in like six to nine months when there's been more of a fallout because right now, a lot of the more traditional Silicon Valley investors who do take board seats are really trying to convince me of, of like how messed up it is the strategy that Tiger took, which is, you know, not, not to take board seats and to be passive investor because now a lot of those companies are struggling more and they don't have like the expertise. And this is this is only if you believe that some of these people are actually helpful on the board. If you believe that, then some of these companies feel a little bit abandoned because they don't have that support in more difficult times. So, I mean, I think it will be interesting to see like if a lot of Tiger global backed companies, which inevitably a lot of them are going to fail because there's hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, if they if they do feel abandoned and there's just more of a public dialogue about that, I do think that we will see a shift. But it kind of depends. And again, it's really about if you believe that these people are really helpful members of the board, um, which you can only find out in more difficult times. It, it does seem reckless to me, just like, you know, like you're saying, these these companies rate get customers based on the firms that invest. It's not like they're anonymous. It's not like we just have anonymous money. It's like we have name money. And so the firm's reputations are being attached to these companies and just like, I don't know, I, I run a business. I wouldn't want my brand to just be attached to things. I had no influence over what, what came of it. It's like, people are ruining your brand and you don't care. Like to me, like if there's more of a correction, like just there will be business pressure to worry about it because you're trashing your brand by attaching it to, to companies. That's probably why the plug was pulled at this point rather than, you know, investors. I mean, yeah, like there's yeah, a different. I mean, world. if you're an investor, nothing more embarrassing than a company with six hundred thousand dollars in revenue. Like, I mean, it's just like that's a makes you look like an idiot. Yeah, I right. mean, I think they should address it. I think that it's frustrating as a reporter that all of these investors are being so silent about it. I think, um, you know, I mean, I know it's we all say this, but it's like they hype them up so much and they beg us to write about them, and that it's like the times that there are these these implosions. I just wish there was more honesty about it. I think like that's frustrating. But Agreed. You know, yeah. every startup right. reporter would agree with you. Right. Right. Like we all, it's, I'm a broken record, but, but as far as the, t- like the, what you're saying about the board and the brand, I think like 
the hedge fund crossover funds, I actually don't think that that's something they're concerned about. I think that perspective is a very like Silicon Valley, venture capital firm, Sand Hill Road. Our brand's important, like Tigers, as you know, we've all reported is like operating like a public market investor and just like treating everybody like stocks. So different strategy. What, um, I mean, what's the situation now with, uh, with Bolt? Uh, obviously they, their CEO got shit canned. Um, but he's the chair. He got elevated. He ascended. He was promoted. Uh, <laughs> right. He got a pervert. Um, he's chairman of the board now. Um, so he's still right. involved. You, you reached mm-hmm. enlightenment. You don't <laughs> right. understand Tom. Yeah. He, he decided he wanted to spend more time with his Twitter posts. <laughs> That is what a chairman allows you to do. He's got a lot of side projects. I mean, didn't he say in his Twitter thread initially that he was thinking about building some kind of Y Combinator competitor? He said something about like building Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. He's working with the founder of MindMed, which is a psychedelics company. It's like Love Medicine or what's it called? It's called Love or Love.com. Oh, okay. They've really gotten to the essence of what what people want. You know, we're selling blockchain love, psychedelic. Like. <laughs> not, it's actually it's not psychedelics. But. It's right. Is the intersection <laughs> of psychedelics and blockchain? It's yeah. It's it's. It, anyways, he's doing that. <laughs> yeah. Also, he's he's involved with Bolt, and Bolt's doing much better than Fast. Um, we I think we reported their revenue. <laughs> That's not. Last I mean, year. I'm doing much better than Fast. That's yeah, well, well, obviously, yes. Yeah. They're still they're still a business. <laughs> My company so. is also doing better than Fast. <laughs> You're right. But they they had forty million, I think forty million in revenue last year. Um, so a, a better business. Um, but they do have like a twelve, thirteen billion dollar valuation. So the correction is probably overdue there. But like I said, t- doing a lot better than fast. Right. Uh, okay. So 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 is there still a belief? I mean, because I imagine what happened with both these companies is that there was this thesis on the part of investors saying like, well, the patent is expiring. There's going to be a boon or at least like a couple of winners of people in like the one-click checkout space. And so that's how you get, you know, quick investments and high valuations early on with these two companies. Fast is dead. Bolt is, you know, I guess doing better. But is there like still a strong belief among investors that there's a real opportunity here? Or is this just something that what little business exists is just going to be owned by whatever, Amazon one-click checkout or Apple Pay or or what? I mean, like, is there anything here or is this just a mistake? I think people are going to like put that on ice for a little bit and maybe keep their distance. I don't think we're going to see a lot of funding there. I mean, I think it's also like a product that other fintechs can build. Right. Affirm was sort of, didn't you say this in the yeah. story, sort of competing with them. I mean, obviously yes. Affirm mm-hmm. offers a different product, but I mean, people are building in this type of I think uh, yeah, more complex businesses are incorporating this into their business. Like, I don't think that we're going to see a lot of funding and standalone one-click checkout companies. Here's my big question. Do you think if the tweet storm never gets dropped, you know, I Ryan told uh, what the three what cartoon avatars podcast, he was like, oh, I'd been sitting on it for two or three years waiting for the right moment. Like, you think if he never drops up fast is still in business today? Like, do you think like that really drew the attention in or you think this was like this was coming whether there was the absurd i think this was coming i i just didn't care about these companies until it was like he was talking about but you reported them so you know your own interest in it and i don't you know i wasn't doing it i knew them well i think so i guess i'm biased it's hard for me to like have an objective opinion on that because i already knew them i already knew ryan i already knew dom but i i know i really think it was inevitable you just can't you can't burn 10 million dollars a month well, the only thing that could have saved them is, is um, you know, going back six months and like us, like not allowing the stock market to behave the way that it has, you know, like <laughs> right, it's right. because of the environment yeah. change. What also, it seems like the mistake that they made here is that they were only burning 10 million a month, you know, like that's an unfortunate middle zone to be in. If you're burning 2 million, oh yeah, you've got some runway. If you're burning 100 million or like 70 million, oh, then you've got investors really feeling that they need to get this thing going. Uh, cause, cause you're in the too big to fail zone, but like 10 million is like, you didn't go big enough. I right. Feel. I mean, actually it's funny cause a lot of people after the article came out were like, well, you know, like that's pretty normal for a startup, like burning 10 million and like not making any revenue. I'm like, okay, well, like. <laughs> yeah. Send me the list of, uh, examples I would like to have. Yeah. I was like, you know, do you know I, others that, I mean, okay. But again, yeah, if you run out of the funding, then you're screwed. So it doesn't really seem like what the was, best What model. was Uber doing? Eric at, at like at its craziest in the I mean, times. Uber burned like $2 billion in China and like a lot of the revenue was like, yeah. That's I what mean, you Uber be played doing. so many accounting games. Yeah. I was going to actually joke on your point about, yeah, not burning enough money. There is like, well, we're, 
we're a company that burns through a lot of money. So we need to raise a lot of capital, which means you'll be able to deploy a lot of capital, take a lot of ownership. You know, you can sell any of these things as like upside in boom times where it's like, oh yeah, we want to deploy. And this is a company that really, really has appetite for capital. Right. I mean, if you're good at fundraising, then you can fundraise a lot of money. And then that's (laughs) the thing. It's like, there are these people in Silicon Valley who like, they've started a lot of companies. We know them. They're really good. They're, they have a lot of charm, big personalities, and they're really good at selling a vision. And like, I'll sometimes, obviously, sometimes terrible at building, but that ability to fundraise really well can take you really far. And I would not be surprised if Dom is back in a year with a new company raising money. I really well, wouldn't be. Insider, we ran a story. I had nothing to do with it, but we ran a story uh, interviewing some of the angel investors who were like, 100%, back him again. Do it tomorrow. Pitch me. Pitch me, Dom. Pitch me hard. Like, yeah, I they, saw that. I, they love it. They love this shit. What What are some companies that have burned that much money or more that did turn around and were successful? Like, I mean, obviously Uber, but they had to shut down some of its money losing. They had to shut down like a lot of projects in order to like. Well, the key here is this is like a payment but like it should be very high, right? High margins, right? So it's, and so it's like. It's, yeah, it's like, what's a pure software company that has had that kind of burn rate? Well, Palantir burned a lot. Of, I mean, Palantir had the whole consulting thing forever where it was like, yeah, tons but of that's, they were never a pure software company because their software is too hard to use. You needed like so many people to operate right. it at first to make it go. So, but yeah, it's like so weird. I just like the math is so bizarre. It doesn't make any sense. But, but on the angel investment point, I just wanted to say, I mean, you know, we had Parker Conrad on as our first right. guest. He's sort of the case in point on fantastical blowups are a strong sign that this is a CEO who knows where the action is, you know, knows how to build a company with buzz, right place, wrong. You know, I mean, I, I obviously, yeah. I mean, some people would say what Parker did is benefits is worse. I mean, I think Parker, I know Parker better. He's such a product visionary that it feels like there's so much substance there that it was believable. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a reason to back founders who have crazy blowups. I mean, because they did some yeah. things really well and learned things from the rest. Right. I mean, it's frustrating for people, especially like female founders watching someone like that continue to raise money. But you're right. And I and I do think that he was a talented brand marketer. Like I Dom. said, talented. Fu- yes, Dom, talented fundraiser. Maybe I mean, maybe a good salesman, clearly not good enough considering, the, you know, their business, but in a different role, it could be successful. That's the thing. It's it's the not good enough that makes it, that clearly was the flaw here. It's like he was a good fundraiser, but not a good enough fundraiser. He was good at promoting himself and making a big, but he wasn't that big because not that many people knew who they were. You know, it like didn't reach Adam Newman like levels. You know, he was big in Florida, but not in Miami. It was fucking Tampa. Could he, could like, he, could he have reached Adam Newman levels though, if the market hadn't changed these last few months and he continued to raise. Like, that's the question because he did raise $125 million. That's a lot of money. It makes way more sense. We were, I don't think this guy, this guy didn't go big enough. He's not, maybe you're right if he'd gotten there, but he's not, he's not Parker. He's not Adam. He's not, I don't think he's getting the eye. He's Australian, so, but he's I not Israeli. So it's just like, not there. He just seems a little <laughs> lame. Like some of these other people, at least they were like really in it. You know, you want to come off like you were a lunatic, but on a huge, impressive <laughs> scale. You I don't commit think this, to the lunacy. this right. isn't big enough. You know, this seems sort of. Yeah. So what does Stripe look like after this? Obviously, I don't think there's a reckoning that's going to happen. To them. Stripe put out a report on its super high level financials and said that in 2021, the total payment value over its platform was $640 billion, up 60% year over year. By comparison, Adyen uh, had $561 billion, up 70%. Adyen's valuation is about $57 billion and down 25% year over year. And Stripe's valuation is $95 billion and flat since basically uh, March of 2021. This is uh, Shiel Monat, an investor, seed investor. I hope I'm saying his name right, but credit to him for pulling the information together. But yeah, so, and Stripe also said in that document that they didn't think 2022 would be necessarily as good as 2021 because some of what they saw was thanks to the pandemic. Anyway, so those are just some fast facts from their report. But yeah, Kate, I don't know. Yeah, what is... To follow up on Tom's question. Yeah, yeah I mean, Kate, you've done a really good job for a number of years, like even back when I was at The Information, talking about Stripe's VC effort and their kind of path towards disrupting a lot of 
a lot of early stage investors. Um, and they're, they're, Stripe is like, when it comes to fintech, they're basically like the NSA, right? Like they know everything that's going on, which is another reason why it's kind of incredible that Fast went on as long as it did, because they should have had very good intel as to whether or not this was being picked up. But anyway, I mean, like what, what, what's, uh, you know, what's your take on them at this point? Well, on the VC side of things, I, I don't know, but I, I think that they are going to probably slow down a little bit. Well, for, of course, because of the market, but I also think like, I get this, this, this probably this took a huge hit to their reputation. I think that they're probably quite embarrassed about it because they're so involved. I mean, every headline, it's like, I mean, from us, like strike back fast, like they're just, they're a huge part of this story. And also the the two people who are really leading VC there have left. They left a year ago. Um, you know, who they do have they? that was Jordan Angelos who went to um Ribbit and Justin Overdorf who went to Lightspeed. Right. And both now partners at these firms. Jordan was the one on this deal. He was involved, yes. He was on the deal. Um he had been there in the MA department or Corp Dem department a, a long time or a while, longer than Justin. So they're gone. So Maya, I can't I don't know her last name, but she's now kind of filling that role in Corp Dev. I think she's interim. They haven't really seemed to build up that team. And I think in their absence, like there just isn't, it's not as much of a priority. Although I do think the Collisons and Will Gabrick, who's like their uh, chief product officer, do care a lot about investing and are very interested in it. So I will be watching. I don't know how they're going to act. I don't know if they're going to make a splash or just kind of chill. I think given everything happening in the market, they probably are going to take a step back and maybe they'll focus more on acquisitions because things are going to be real cheap and we're going to be seeing that. So it's probably what I would expect for them. And what about Stripe, the business, or what's your view? Yeah. That's a big question. I mean, like, it doesn't seem like this is going to be the year for them to go public. I'm curious what you guys think, but if they're going to do it this year, it's got to be end of the year. I'm probably looking more like 2023 to me, but like, of course, employees are wanted to go public so bad. How old is this company now? Like 12, 12 years, 13? It's like a decade plus, and it's time, but now they kind of missed their window. Stripe was founded in 2010. 2010, so 12 years. Yep. I mean, do, do you guys, what do you think about their valuation? Like, people ask me all the time, and for the longest <laughs> time, I felt like they were, like, I was expecting they'd raise it, you know, $150 billion, $200 billion, and they didn't Right, I mean, it. there were definitely private market transactions in the mid, you know, 140, oh, yeah. 150 yeah. range. And, you know, I, I had an interview with Chris Saka, who's bought up a lot of Stripe, and he said that he'd gotten offers at two hundred billion. It's not clear if that actually transacted or not, but you know, oh yeah, they got up there, there was definitely a ton of appetite. Yeah, I mean, I, we don't really know, you know, the numbers, so it's hard. The public comps are hard. I mean, I think that's sort of the at the end point is just there are companies that have gone public that seem to be trading at worse multiples than Stripe. And the other point this investor made is that Stripe has more than seven thousand employees, whereas Adyen has like 2,000 employees. So just on a sort of payment volume to employee basis, Stripe is clearly racking up the expenses. I think that there's a theme here too about overhiring. Like a lot of the companies I've been covering, that's been a key issue. And like we saw with Hopin, you know, that was like a, that was like the company for the last couple of years. And they cut, I think, 20% of staff. And I, I've heard like just in reading other reports that there are more layoffs likely to come. And I just think last year people made a really big mistake in beefing up their staffs just way too much. And hearing that, maybe that's the case with Stripe. Maybe they need to also take a haircut to the to that massive number. That's that's huge. Well, did they I mean, was part of that with Stripe because they were staffing up for pandemic level transaction volume increasing? I think you saw that being a big driver of of headcount increases for businesses that had a tailwind because like I mean, again, sorry to bring up GoPuff again, but like, you know, they hired a shitload of people because ordering to your home was a big deal uh, during the pandemic. And, and you know, they had layoffs like you guys reported. And that is a result of needing to restructure both because, you you know, we're not living in the same environment now where you need, you know, the, the, maybe the number of people to do that. And there was maybe a mistaken bet on, you know, the continuation yeah, but, of the business. Yeah, those are very yeah. different types of businesses. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I know. It's, it's not a different. great it's not a great comp. Unfortunately, it's the one I've been spending time talking to people about. Right. But I, you're right. I see what you mean. It's like people did make that bet. But like in, in Hoppin's case, I don't know if I understand fully why they thought that the demand for their service would would be sustainable after people are no longer at home. Well, if the growth metrics are all predicated on pandemic behavior continuing. Right. As if even after the pandemic, then 
you have to sort of commit to that in strategy, even if it doesn't really make sense. And it's a huge issue for comps, right? I mean, like that really was what screwed Instacart when they really had their heart set on going public was that their massive 2020 and, you know, 2021 was going to look awful. And you were going to go, you know, to market with an S1 that was like, yeah, so we're flat, but we're, you know, at best, uh, but we're going to command, you know, a growth multiple on what's basically, you know, a, a not great margin delivery business. And so, yeah, I think for any company that had a huge tailwind going public, it, this environment is just such a bad idea. Uh, macro macro factors notwithstanding. You know what it reminds me also, Kate, uh, like the Stripe situation. And I actually, I defer to Eric and Katie on this because you guys actually covered the company, but it reminds me of Airbnb near like the final stages of being a private company where they really wanted to hold out for as long as they could, but employees were so antsy. I do think it's similar. Yeah, I think that's the biggest, easy compared to that moment. There was like a lot of reporting in the lead up to Airbnb's IPO. And I like, there hasn't really been actually that much reporting on how Stripe employees are feeling. It's something I've like, you know, on my to-do list that I haven't gotten to, but. I know. Well, it's always, I always, I'm sure you feel the same way. It's like, I should write more about Stripe, but it's like, is it that interesting of a story? Like Airbnb, at least customers all over the world still care about So it's harder. Right. Right. And there just hasn't been that narrative that has been that interesting. I mean, like the Collisons are just like picture perfect, like, again, like Silicon Valley's darlings. So it's like, I don't know. Hasn't been as compelling I mean, to dive into. I mean, like the Airbnb founders, they seem a little like precious about their brand. I, I don't know, but they're good at it. I mean, they're their really brand good is good, at guys. It. it needs more reporting, right. though. It does. I think, like, given the given its size, I mean, it's seven thousand people. It's a hundred billion dollar company. Yeah, it definitely is a Silicon Valley story. It's it just. I wish, yeah, I wish there were people who could spend more time on it. What has Stripe done to relieve some of that pressure? Because I feel like you know, Palantir, Airbnb, different companies have done more or less to. Give employees options to, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like, has Stripe done secondaries? Have they found ways to appeal? I'm sure that they have. Yeah, I'm sure they've done many. They've, I'm sure they've done many tranches of secondary sales to. They've had to have, right? Like, I mean, the I think employees. Right, all these companies are doing secondaries. Yeah, now. I mean, it's a big, again, another topic always worth more reporting. You know, I do think there are these firms that pursue secondary strategies where they have a big information advantage over employees. Employees are often the ones getting the worst deal on these secondary sales, but then they have the least control over when the company actually goes public. So they need, they need the money. Um, so I do think, yeah, the, the pushback on sort of these companies waiting forever to go public is that they're, they're hurting their own employees. Um, and I feel like they don't get that much criticism for it. Yeah, but I think oh, like if Stripe goes now, you know, it's a bad outcome for everyone. Yeah, that might be an interesting way to look at a company like Stripe because it's not consumer facing, but to look at it through the employees. This a long time ago, I did a story on a company that had basically failed. And so, you know, looking at what happened to the employees there was really dramatic. But I think I, I would love to read a story about a company like Stripe where the company's not failing, but the employees are still not having good outcomes. Yeah. And like the flip side of it is also, I actually just had a story this morning about DoorDash, which, you know, their stock has been pretty bad over the last six months. I mean, they, they had a, a pretty good, uh, you know, first half of 2021. And they really, they, they're down like more than half from their peak. And they hired a lot during the pandemic. And they're now having to offer like refresher equity grants to employees yeah. um, because so many of them were compensated, you know, their compensation comes through stock and that stock is now not valuable uh, as, as much as it was. And so, it, you know, it's it's a, I, I almost feel somewhat for the companies here. It's like, yeah, sure, we can go public, but that's not going to solve the problems. I mean, give some liquidity to early shareholders so you'll get returns there. But if you staffed up a ton during, you know, like Stripe maybe did, and if they were to go public and their valuation is down, you could suddenly have, you know, not particularly valuable, you know, equity. Uh, so the craziest thing about startup employees has also always been that there's a set that seems to pick companies based on high valuations when they should pick them based on low valuations. Well, they don't well, they don't know. And that's like the big issue is like nobody knows how equity works really. And companies do such a terrible job of educating employees about exercising and options and what equity is and like valuations. And it's it's frustrating, I think, like for those employees and like their taxes and all these things that like these companies, oftentimes even like the executives aren't for a startup, like a startup executive might not even be that educated on. I think it's a big problem that I'm surprised hasn't. That's what like Carta is doing. Like they're trying to like sell 
that education right. to these companies. So I think that's a good thing because it, it seems like a problem that there's not more knowledge in the ecosystem about that. But they're happy to hype it up when times are good, right? I remember years ago, Reed uh, Albergati at The Information wrote, I think, fuck, I, I'm pretty sure he wrote this story. I remember talking to him about it, how Palantir used to have like a fun interactive Excel, Excel spreadsheet for Palantir employees to sort of show like how much their equity be worth. Uh, if they joined at certain times, you can kind of like put a little slider on to see how much your your net worth would be. So they're they're totally happy to gamify it when times are good. Uh, and use as an attraction. But yeah, like the nitty gritty of a flat or a down round or like, like you're saying the taxes, it's like, ah, yeah, yeah, I don't know. You guys figure it out Yeah, they don't get into that. And even like in Fast Case, I saw an offer letter, you know, that went through total comp and the trajectory that they, like the projections that they provided were 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 somewhat silly. Like I said in the story, the highest was a $12 billion valuation. And this is like a $500 million startup that was, that was struggling. Then this is a September offer letter. Like, you know, it was a different period. Maybe they didn't know what was coming, but like they knew their revenue. So it's just, those are the kind of numbers that employees are given. And they're like, oh shit, like my equity is going to be worth that much. Like when you guys hit a $12 billion valuation, like that's awesome. Yeah. Let's think for like our last question here, like last segment here, like we really in a downturn now, Kate? Like, is this actually something that you think is is going to persist for any, I mean, I was just talking to people about a company uh, the other day and they were sort of saying like, oh, it looks like the tech stock, you know, NASDAQ is back. You know, what maybe seemed like a completely postponed IPO for the rest of the year can now be like a Q4 thing. And and that sort of stuff, you know, it starts early in the private market. So like, what's your sense actually as this, you know, record this on April 8th, 22, like, where are we? Yeah, I mean, it's six months now of me just being like, it's an uncertain period. I don't know, <laughs> right? But I think what I'm realizing is like, regardless of how the stock market's behaving, Regardless of other macroeconomic conditions, I think investors, venture capitalists have decided collectively that like they don't want to do those high high valuation deals. They don't want to work at that pace that they've been working at. And they they're all kind of taking a step back. And if they're all taking a step back, like startups have a harder time raising, you know, it's a domino effect on the startup market in particular. So, yeah, I think we're entering. I don't know. I don't want to be the person to say it's a downturn. I don't know. But I think we're certainly entering into a much slower period. I think on the macroeconomic side, it supports you because as interest yeah. rates are rising, I'm not going to say that it will cause a downturn, but if interest rates go up, it just makes other investments that have been really low return for basically since 2009, makes them more attractive because they'll yield more as interest rates go up. So part of the reason why so much money was going into venture capital and into private equity in general was because the yields on the investments were generally so much higher. It seems silly not to put the money there. But if you can get more on a more traditional investment now, you'll just start allocating big, you know, big you know, endowments will start allocating money differently. So, I mean, is that a downturn or is that just people saying we can make more money with less bullshit <laughs> or, we, did, did can anybody, make, or uh, we can make reasonable money? You, you've got somebody who agrees with you. Did anybody watch Peter Thiel talk at, a, at the Bitcoin conference? I watched the YouTube No, but video. I'm going to say that I'm surprised, like, I've listened to Peter Thiel talk, like, a lot of his speeches, especially, like, his Rene Girard speeches and stuff. The number of times that I'm in agreement with Peter Thiel is not zero. I'll put it that way. And so it does make me think, like... <laughs> he, I, I mean, he, it, was a, it was an amazingly anti-company uh, argument for somebody who makes a bunch of his money from a VC firm. But it sounds like a contrarian take. Yeah, I know. I mean, I I thought it was dumb. I thought it was dumb, but he was basically arguing, you know, that gold and equities used to be sort of similarly valued in, you know, collective, collective equities and gold in the seventies. And that now we've seen just like an explosion of equity values. And is it that crazy to think that the value of Bitcoin should be more equivalent to the total value of equities? I don't know that, it seems like, an, and then he, then then he got all the headlines by saying that, you know, the the enemies of Bitcoin are you know Warren Buffett, uh, Jamie Dimon, and uh, Larry Fink at BlackRock, and then he then Teal was like, you know, uh, ESG equals CCP. You know, it, it, it was a very re- sort of Trumpian blah, blah, uh, blah. sort of argument. Uh, I was going to say like I don't know that I said any of that. Of, I but, was just saying that interest rates are going to make other investments more attractive. The the smartest point of his thing was that (laughs) he, he was arguing that, you know, Bitcoin had basically been a canary for, you know, inflation and that 
if inflation continues, that that will be a strike against equities and will people move to sort of more old school stores of value like gold or as he would sort of prefer Bitcoin. Yeah, I I'm, I was being sort of cute that you were totally agreeing with. I mean, I think it's safe to say it's a correction right now on VC. That's probably like, is that safer than saying it's a full downturn? I think it's a correction to like what happened last year and just like the insanity. And yeah, you're right. Like the, it is going to be much more difficult for second tier or cra- like the crappier VC funds to fundraise. And that's going to also, you know, of course that that plays a huge role. So I think we'll start to see more evidence of that. Like so far this year, we've just seen like record fundraising because it's all last year kind of like right. tumbling over into early this year. But soon we'll get into like the meat of this actual year and we'll start to see the struggles a little bit but more. That's, you know, that's the funny thing here, though, is that, you know, you still see these crazy rounds that will come up from time to time. And everyone's like, yeah, but that was a deal that really is more of a 2021 deal. You know, it's really just trickling over, carrying over from 2022. And it's like, all right, you know, we are four months into this year. People don't announce that stuff for a long time. Yeah, fair enough. So that's why. I mean, you, you know, you have a lot of deals where it's like the hands where sh- they shook hands in October or like July and they they wait to announce it. So you don't even. Yeah, right. I and, and have to ask when it was done. As you and your colleague Berber reported, uh, you know, you've seen companies like Tiger clawing back in really inelegant ways on on some of the deals that they had struck. But honestly, so. that was a great story. But I think less than some of the VCs would fear monger over. It, it doesn't feel like there's been this like wholesale clawback. Or do you, do you think they're just like a ton of unreported cases? I mean, that is... What, like of repricing? Yeah, um, I mean, because I everybody points to that same one that Forbes reported. I feel like that company comes up all the time. Oh, DBT? Yeah. Uh, yes. I think the repricing was like a six-week season that occurred like in January, February um, after like those 21, you know, really close to 2021. So like the deals kind of were negotiated around when the markets really changed. So I don't think it's happening now. I, and I agree with you. I, I don't, I mean, I was like, I spent like weeks trying to find as many examples as I could and kind of continued for a while. And I don't think there's like, a ton that we don't know hmm. about because like those are often the ones that get to us because people want to like shit on those investors that yeah people want to show tiger is like bad like oh, this uh, is yeah, why you well, shouldn't totally. take their money there's so much of a source interest in showing that the fact that more yeah. has emerged to me is I don't yeah know. i agree i think that probably shows because i mean you, most investors know that that is like suicide because if you're if you start doing that like that gets around so quick and then people don't want to work with you so right. I, I don't think that that and we're still in a founder market even if like even if things are changing, the dynamics are changing, like there are still, you know, a finite number of like these great companies and there are so many investors and there's like what, like $350 billion or something raised in 2021, just like insane amount of money. So I don't think there's as much of that. Sometimes I feel like they're more exciting investors than companies. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's more fun to talk about some of the investors. I'm like, what are the companies that are like so exciting to talk about? There's so much politics in the venture side, and I think that is interesting too. So, like, I yeah, I think it can be more compelling to to dive into like their dynamics than the founders. I I agree. Sounds to me like we're all getting ourselves ready for a Dom Holland comeback. <laughs> maybe maybe in the next week or two. Um, so when that happens, uh, I'll be very excited to have you back on here, Kate. Definitely. Uh, hopefully, feeling better. Look, at least we're all doing better than fast. Can we at least say that? <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for joining. This was fun. Thank you. Yeah, so thanks for having now. me. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.